On July the 8th, 1962, readers of the Sunday edition of the Boston Herald opened up their papers to a shocking headline. Mad Strangler Kills Four Women in Boston. The article warned that a mad strangler is loosed in Boston who has slain four women during the past month. Several women in the greater Boston area called the police in a panic, saying a man claiming to be the strangler had called their homes to tell them, you will be next. One man eventually confessed to all 13 murders and many assumed the investigation was complete. But the truth of the man's confession has been disputed for decades. Was there only one Boston Strangler? Or were the 13 killings the work of more than one murderer? This is the case of the Boston Strangler. Well, hello, my fellow weirdos. Welcome to episode 24 of Horror House, True Crime and the Macabre. How is everyone? I hope everyone is doing marvellously and I hope everyone is having a fantastic Friday. So today we are talking about the Boston Strangler, which potentially is kind of an unsolved murder case, kind of, kind of. You'll see a little bit later on what I mean. (laughs) Also, this episode is a solo episode. This is not a collab. It is a solo episode. It's, I know, it's, I know, I can hear, I can hear you all. Oh my God, Dom's doing a solo episode. (laughs) It's been like two months. Uh, Yes, it has been a while. It's been a hot minute. But it is, it is a, it is a solo episode today. I have absolutely loved all the collabs I've done in the past sort of, I don't know, month, six weeks, however long it's been. They've been so fun, so amazing. Um, but I am I'm really excited to get a little solo episode out. But that also means that you you have to listen to just my voice today. So sorry about that. <laughs> it does come with a caveat, unfortunately. So before we get rocking and rolling, I just want to thank all the people that have got merch recently from the merch store. I have been adding uh, quite a bit of stuff recently, and I've had people get mugs recently, uh, hats, crop tops, hoodies. The feedback has been amazing uh, so far. So thank you so much to everyone who has bought merch, you know, and it's just sort of represented the podcast. It it genuinely warms my cold, cold heart. So thank you very, very much, you amazing, amazing human beings. So with that out of the way, why don't we dive in to the case of the Boston Strangler? And let's see if I can remember how to host an episode on my own, because it's been it's been a hot minute. But let's get let's get cracking. Let's get cracking. So the victims of the Boston Strangler were all single women but their profiles were quite different otherwise. One was just 19 years old, while the oldest victim 
was 85. Some lived in Boston, but others lived uh, north in Salem, Lynn and Lawrence. They were students and seamstresses, widows and divorcees. From the start, police theorised that likely one person, most probably a man, committed the crimes. So many aspects of the crimes pointed to a single mode of operation. The women were almost invariably raped and strangled, usually with nylon stockings. Many were killed in the middle of the day and the victims would be lying naked on top of their bed covers for the police to find. Oddly, the strangler didn't appear to have broken into any of the victims' homes. That led police to believe that the woman had known their attacker. More likely, the woman had believed that he was someone they could trust and had expected to arrive. The perpetrator may have dressed up as a repairman or a delivery person. Ah, the old porn setup. <laughs> it's always a repairman or delivery person. Always. <laughs> Despite widespread media coverage following the first few murders, uh, the attacks would continue. Tear gas and new locks and deadbolts were purchased by many residents and some of the women would even leave the region altogether. Even though the public dubbed the unknown criminal the Boston Strangler, many of the incidents uh, occurred outside of Boston's city borders. This would make things increasingly difficult for Boston cops and Suffolk County prosecutors. Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke, who would later become the first African-American to be popularly elected to the US Senate, would step in to help coordinate police activities. He allowed parapsychologist Peter uh, Hercos to investigate the instance using his reported extrasensory perception which Hercos said was the work of a single person, which was a contentious uh, decision, which isn't massively shocking, you know. The press would mock Brooke after Hercos supplied a minutely precise description of the wrong person. Although the majority of the public would believe it, the police were not satisfied that all of the murders were committed by one person. The apparent links between the vast majority of the fatalities have also been widely discussed. So these are the reported 13 victims of the Strangler. Quick disclaimer, disclaimer, there will be references to rape and sexual assault and obviously murder. Uh, so just so everyone is aware. So Anna Elsa Slizzers, 56, was sexually assaulted with an unknown object and strangled with the belt on her bathrobe. She was found on June the 14th, 1962, in her third floor apartment at 77 Gainsborough Street, Fenway, Boston. Mary Mullen, aged 85, died from a heart attack and was found on June the 28th, 1962, in her apartment at 1435 Commonwealth Avenue, uh, Boston. The strangler said that she collapsed as he grabbed her. Nina Frances Nichols, aged 68, was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on June the 30th, 1962, in her home at 1940 Commonwealth Avenue, Boston. Helen Elizabeth Blake, aged 65, 
was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on June the 30th, 1962, in her home at 73 Newhall Street, Lynn, Massachusetts. Uh, Ida Odess Erger, aged 74, was sexually assaulted and strangled and found on August 19th, 1962, in her apartment at 7 Grove Street, Beacon Hill, in Boston. Jane Buckley Sullivan, aged 67, was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on August the 21st, 1962, in her home at 435 Columbia Road, Dorchester, in Boston. Sophie Clark, aged 20, was sexually assaulted and strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on December the 5th, 1962, in her apartment at 315 Huntington Avenue, Fenway, in Boston. Uh, Patricia Bissette, aged 22, was strangled with her nylon stockings and was found on December the 31st, 1962, in her home at 515 Park Drive, Fenway, in Boston. Mary Ann Brown, aged 69, was raped, strangled, beaten and stabbed Holy shit. Uh, Goddamn. She was found on March the 6th, 1963, in her apartment at 319 Park Street, Lawrence, in Massachusetts. Uh, Beverly Sammons, aged 26, was stabbed to death and found on May the 6th, 1963, in her home at 4 University Road in Cambridge, in Massachusetts. We're nearly, we're nearly at the end, guys. We, we, we're nearly there. We've got a few more. We're, we're nearly there. So uh, Marie uh, Corbin, aged 58, was raped and strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on September the 8th, 1963, in her home at 224 Lafayette Street in Salem, Massachusetts. Uh, Joanne uh, Graff, aged 22, was strangled with her nylon stockings. She was found on November the 23rd, 1963, in her apartment at 54 Essex Street in Lawrence, Massachusetts. And Mary Ann Sullivan, aged 19, was sexually assaulted and strangled with, again, nylon stockings. She was found on January the 4th, 1964, in her apartment at 44A Charles Street, Boston. Lordy fucking lordy lord. So as you can see, the strangler was was kind of, maybe, possibly a huge piece of trash wanker arsehole piece of shit. Young, old, everybody is fair game to this absolute fuck nugget. Sophia of the Boston Strangler would consume the whole city. Though police were on high alert for one type of person, others would still flourish. One such criminal was the Green Man, who had began his crime spree in Boston and then moved on to terrorise cities in Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island and New Hampshire. Authorities believed the Green Man, whose nickname came from the green clothes he'd wear while committing his crimes, committed more than 400 burglaries and sexually assaulted more than 300 women. While a task force was investigating the Boston Strangler, one was also looking 
for the Green Man. In October of 1964, a 20-year-old Cambridge woman reported her sexual assault to the police. She told them that she'd woken up to find a man in her bedroom. Wielding a knife, he would tie her up and molest her. After she complained that her bonds were too tight, he would loosen them. The woman's description of her attacker led police to to identify the assailant as one Alberto de Salvo. Many women would recognise Alberto de Salvo as the man who had abused them after his photo was published. De Salvo had attempted to enter a property in Bridgewater, Massachusetts earlier that day, posing as a driver with car trouble. When the homeowner, uh, who happened to be future Brockton Police Chief Richard Sprouls, became suspicious, he shot De Salvo with a shotgun. I mean, fair play. If you're going to do that, then um, you're getting the shotgun. And now it's time to hear from another true crime podcast, The Secret Sits. Oh, hello. Let me introduce myself. I am John Dotson, and I host The Secret Sits, a true crime podcast. If you're like me, you undoubtedly have quite a few podcasts you listen to on a regular basis. Now, I, for one, love a great chatty podcast with multiple hosts. It can really make you feel like you're just hanging out with some friends. But sometimes you need to chill out and relax while listening to an extraordinary true crime story with no interruptions and just the facts. The Secret Sits strives to push boundaries and present cases in an immersive storytelling atmosphere. I've spent my life working as a director, writer, and performer, and I've been fortunate enough to travel all over the world, creating art through theater, television, and film. Now I'm fervently bringing my passions for true crime cases and the arts to this podcast. Here on The Secret Sits, we cover all types of true crime, from serial killers like Eileen Warnos and Rodney Alcala, to cults, museum heists, mass shootings, or any other cases we find interesting. Every Thursday, immerse yourself into a new episode you may find yourself in the Aokigahara Forest in Japan or recounting the Columbine school shooting minute by minute. The Secret Sits podcast is not responsible for any loss of road rage, Calgon taking you away, being more polite in the grocery store, or suddenly becoming an armchair detective. You can find all episodes of The Secret Sits for free on all podcast platforms, including YouTube. So, Mr. DeSalvo, let's let's take this time to delve into the early life of one Mr. Alberto DeSalvo. So, Alberto DeSalvo was born to Frank and Charlotte DeSalvo in Chelsea, Massachusetts. His father was a vicious drinker who had once knocked out all of his wife's teeth and bent her fingers back until they broke in front of their children. Um, seems like a, a good husband and father, doesn't he? Old, old Frankie boy. He would often uh, bring prostitutes home and engage in sexual activity with them in front of his wife and children. 
Oh boy. DeSalvo would start abusing animals as a child. Oh dear. Uh, and in his early adolescence, he would begin shoplifting and stealing, regularly running afoul of the law. So as you can see, old Frankie boy DeSalvo was was a was you know, just 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 a just a bit of a shitbag of a human being. I mean, I, I think that's fair to say. I don't think I'm over. I think I'm actually underselling how much of a piece of shit Frank seems to be. I don't know the man, but I mean, he knocked out all of his wife's teeth and would bend her fingers back until they broke, and he would often bring prostitutes home and engage in sexual acts in front of in front of the wife and children so like frankie boy yikes just just throw frank away just just throw frank de salvo away <laughs> just throw him in the bin cancel cancel frank de salvo everybody de salvo at age 12 was arrested for violence and robbery in november 1943 he was sent to the lyman school for boys in december of that year he was released in october 1944 and would begin working as a delivery boy. However, he would return to the Lyman School in August 1946 for stealing a vehicle. DeSalvo would join the army after serving his second stint at the Lyman School. After his first tour of duty, he was honourably discharged. Uh, DeSalvo would re-enlist and was again honourably discharged, despite being prosecuted in a court-martial. How the fuck can you be honourably discharged but yet be prosecuted in a court-martial? How does that make any sense? Please, somebody, <laughs> slide in my DMs and tell me how that works because I have no idea. De Salvo was a military police sergeant in the 14th Armoured Cavalry Regiment's 2nd Squadron. Uh, De Salvo was photographed being detained on February the 25th, 1967, and was wearing a US Navy dress blue uniform with an E4 emblem on his sleeve. De Salvo lived at 11 Florence Street Park in Malden, Massachusetts, which was across the street from the intersection of Florence and Clement uh, Streets at the time of the Boston Strangler murders. So with that little background on uh, Alberto De Salvo out of the way, let's, let's get back to the investigation and search for the Boston Strangler. So DeSalvo was not suspected of being involved in the strangling murders at first. He delivered a thorough confession of his activities as the Boston Strangler after being charged with rape. He would initially confess to George Nassar, who was a fellow inmate. Nassar would tell his lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, about the confession, and Bailey also took on DeSalvo's defence. The police were impressed by DeSalvo's accounts of the crime sites. There were, however, some inconsistencies, but DeSalvo was able to cite details that had been withheld from the public. Bailey would state in his 1971 book, The Defence Never Rests, that DeSalvo got one detail right that one of the victims was actually wrong about. DeSalvo described a blue chair in the woman's living room. However, that, however, she would state that it was brown. Photographic evidence would prove that DeSalvo was correct. 
his confession was also not supported by any tangible evidence. As a result, he was tried for an earlier unrelated charge of robbery and sexual offences, for which he was dubbed the Green Man and the Measuring Man, respectively. Bailey brought up DeSalvo's confession to the killings during the trial as part of his client's background in the hopes of obtaining a not guilty by reason of insanity uh, plea, but the court would deem it inadmissible. Oh, the old I'm insane defence. In 1967, DeSalvo was condemned to life in prison. He escaped from the Bridgewater State Hospital with two other inmates in February of that year sparking a massive manhunt. A note intended to the superintendent was discovered on his bunk. DeSalvo said that he had escaped to draw attention to the hospital's problems and his own position. You know, he was, he was like, look, I'm a noble man. This is a noble cause. I'm escaping for an entirely noble reason. DeSalvo disguised himself as a US Navy Petty Officer Third Class shortly after his escape but he was apprehended the next day. He was then transported to the maximum security uh, Walpole State Prison after his escape. He was found stabbed to death in the prison infirmary six years after his transfer, and his killer or his killers were never found. So you may think that that's where this case ends, but no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, there is much more than meets the eye because while DeSalvo may have confessed to the crimes, many have doubted his guilt from the very beginning. So DeSalvo, Boston Strangler or not Boston Strangler, people who knew him personally at the time of his confession did not believe that he was capable of such heinous atrocities. According to Dr. Uh, Ames, Ames? Ames. Dr. Ames Roby, uh, who was a medical director of Bridgewater State Hospital, DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler. He said the prisoner was a very clever, very smooth compulsive confessor who desperately needs to be recognised. Middlesex District District Attorney John J. uh, Droney, Bridgewater Superintendent Charles Gohorn, and George W. Harrison, who was a former inmate with DeSalvo, all agreed with Rovi. Harrison also claimed to have overheard another prisoner instructing DeSalvo on the details of the killings. Uh, Bailey, who again was DeSalvo's lawyer, felt his client was the murderer and chronicled the case in his book The Defence Never Rests. Susan Kelly, author of The Boston Stranglers, drew on the Strangler Bureau files of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. She claims that the killings were committed by a group of people rather than by a single person. Uh, Former FBI profiler Robert Ressler would also say, you're putting together so many different patterns that it's inconceivable behaviourally that all of these could fit one individual. Uh, John E. Douglas, the former FBI special agent who was one of the earliest criminal profilers, also doubted that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. He described DeSalvo as a power assurance motivated rapist in his book, The Case That Haunts Us. He said that such a rapist is unlikely to kill in the manner of crimes attributed to the Boston Strangler. 
A power assurance motivated rapist would, however, be prone to taking credit for the crimes. Elaine Sharp, an attorney and former print journalist, would take up the cause of the DeSalvo and Mary Sullivan families in 2000. Although more strangling killings occurred after 1964, Sullivan was widely regarded as the final victim. Sharp aided the family in their efforts to clear DeSalvo's name in the media. She would assist in the planning and execution of the, ex- of the exhumation, exhumations of Mary Sullivan and Albert, Albert H. DeSalvo, filed many lawsuits to gain information and trace evidence, for example DNA, from the government, and collaborated with other filmmakers to develop documentaries in order to educate the public. Uh, Sharp noticed several discrepancies between DeSalvo's confessions and the crime scene data. She noted, for example, that contrary to DeSalvo's confession to Sullivan's murder, the woman had no semen in her vagina and was strangled by ligature rather than manually. DeSalvo got the time of death wrong, according to forensic pathologist Michael Baden. Susan Kelly pointed out this contradiction in numerous murders as well. She continued to work on the DeSalvo's the Salvo family's case. In 2013, the police would have a breakthrough. Using DNA found on a water bottle belonging to De Salvo's nephew, police were able to link the final Boston Strangler victim, 19-year-old Mary Sullivan, to Albert De Salvo. The Y-DNA or genetic material handed down the male line in families uh, found on the bottle was nearly identical to semen found on Sullivan's blanket. Following the Y-DNA match, detectives were able to exhume Albert de Salvo's body and get a DNA sample. To their relief, it was a match, and authorities would posthumously declare Albert de Salvo the murderer of Mary Sullivan, closing uh, her case. But, there's a big old but, and I like a big old but, But the cases of the other 12 of uh, the Boston Strangler victims remains a mystery as there was no DNA to match their cases. So for that reason, the Boston Strangler case remains open to this day. And that is the case of the Boston Strangler. And it's, it's in a way, it's an unsolved one. I mean, you know, yeah, he was linked, um, definitively linked with one of the murders. But there are doubts regarding the other 12. And there is a lack of evidence that ties DeSalvo to them. And that leaves that leaves a bit of a question mark. So what do you think? If you're so inclined, feel free to slide into the DMs on social media and let me know. Was it DeSalvo? Was he responsible for all 13? Was he responsible for just the one and there was someone else who did the other 12? Was there more than one person? Was it a group of people? I would love to know your theories. So don't be afraid. Slide into my DMs. (laughs) So you can find Horror House wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show on social media, uh, on Instagram and on Twitter at horrorhouse underscore pod. Also, if you want to support the show, check out the merch store. I know I've said it already. At nauseam, probably. 
but I've been adding many things recently and people have, have been super stoked with, with the merch that they've got. So please have a look. And if you're so inclined, treat yourself. Treat yourself. It's okay to treat yourself. Come on, guys. <laughs> you can also support the show for free by leaving a rating on Spotify uh, and also leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and recommending the podcast to your friends, to your family, to your pets, to your husbands, to your wives, to your mistresses. I'm not going to judge. <laughs> and it won't cost you a penny. It hope And it helps the show grow and it helps the show reach more people. I, want, I would love to do this full time. I would love to make, you know, my podcast, my, you know, my full time job. So please help me get to that. So all that's left to say from me, my beautiful morbid friends is until next time, stay spooky. <laughs>